I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The Nobel laureate Paul Samuelson, when asked to come up with one economic idea that was both important and not obvious, cited comparative advantage. The idea that nations can benefit from international trade, even if they can produce everything more efficiently or everything less efficiently than their trading partners. While the idea that nations gain from trade is one of the oldest and most durable of economic insights, recently there has been movement away from free trade policies, both in the United States and in other countries. Are there reasons to restrict trade, for example, to boost national production of essential goods like semiconductors or personal protection equipment or for national security? Or will these efforts to limit international trade make for a poorer and more vulnerable world. To discuss these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome back to Econofact Chats, Chad Bown of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Chad is widely recognized as an expert on international trade, and he's one of the most cited economists in the popular press on this issue. He also co-hosts a terrific podcast series about the economics of international trade policy called Trade Talks. Chad has served as a senior economist for international trade and investment in the White House on the Council of Economic Advisors, and he's been a lead economist at the World Bank. Chad, welcome back to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. Chad, you were recently quoted as saying that this is the most exciting, contentious, uncertain time when it comes to trade policy in your lifetime. Why is that? What I focus on in my research is less the, the question of why countries trade and, and what they trade, and rather whether they get along in trade, in trade policy. Do they cooperate, have trade agreements, or do they fight, have trade wars and, and trade disputes? And for most of my life, it's been a period of cooperation. Um, you know, here in the United States, where we live, we never quite got all the way to free trade, but we got pretty close, uh, and certainly very, very close in historical terms. But today is just different, and we've got conflicts coming up all over the place. There's, you know, the obvious trade conflict that the United States has had over the last four or five years with China, the trade war, um, but also there's signs of potential conflict with other major trading partners like the European Union. It's not just tariffs that they're fighting over, you know, import taxes. It's now things like export control policies, limits on what you can sell to other countries or subsidies. It's not any one single product. Uh, you know, it ranges from agriculture to things you mentioned, personal protective equipment, semiconductors, electric vehicles, and the reasons why they're fighting are, are, are oftentimes different as well. Sometimes it might be about 
domestic politics, domestic uh, insecurity, economic security. Maybe it's about health. Maybe it's about resilience and, and something like that. What does that even mean? But now also we're increasingly, I think, seeing signs that it may be spilling over into areas of um, national security and military concerns as well. So I think definitely in, in, in my lifetime and probably you know since the 1930s, there's never been a more contentious time in international trade. So since the 1930s, but for full information, Chad, you're not 80 years old. So <laughs> no, since the, since the early 1970s, I guess since I since I've been around. But I okay. think I would extend that back, even if I were 80 years old. Okay, well, you're much younger than that. Um, the policy fights that you're referring to come from the view that trade is a zero sum activity. Any gains to one group are offset by losses to another. But economists like Paul Samuelson don't believe this to be the case. Chad, is trade a zero-sum activity? No, de definitely not. You know, at the aggregate level, for any country, trade is a winner. And with any two countries, trade is going to be win-win. Um, you know, the way I think we as economists like to think about it is the economy, imagine the economy as being like a pie. Without trade, it's a certain size. It's a relatively small pie. When you open up to trade, that improves economic efficiency, resources within the economy. People switch jobs um, and, and do different things. They get put to better use. What ends up happening is the pie gets bigger. It gets bigger for the United States economy. It gets bigger for the European economy. It, it, it gets bigger for the Chinese economy. You know, this is kind of the standard story in, in international economics that we teach of the benefits of trade, comparative advantage, specialization, things like that. But nonetheless, Chad, there are winners and losers from trade. And even if there are net gains for a country as a whole, the losers are typically not compensated. That's exactly right. Going back to the pie example, with trade, the United States economy, we get a bigger pie overall than we had before. But not everyone gets a bigger piece of that pie. There will be some companies, some workers of those at those companies that will get a much bigger piece of, of, of pie than they had before. But there will be some who not only don't get a bigger piece of pie, their piece of pie is actually going to shrink. They get less than they did before. And part of that is because they now face competition. Whether you're a company that used to be shielded from competition when there was no trade, now you open up to trade and you face uh, other companies out there in the world that are making the same thing that you do. And implicitly, their their workers as well can can introduce that not, that new competition, smaller piece of pie, and in a lot of countries we don't have the ability or we don't redistribute, take some of the bigger piece of pie away from the real winners, and and make everybody better off. That's the kind of thing we don't typically do, even though we could. And in fact, we don't do it for trade, but we don't do it for other things either, right? So for automation or the advent of computers, it's making some people better off, some people worse off. It's probably good for the economy as a whole, but we don't compensate people who, for example, used to run television repair shops, which don't exist anymore. So it's not just trade, but in a dynamic economy, lots of things are not compensated. That's exactly right. So this complaint about international trade is based on the perception 
that it hurts people or at least certain groups of people. But the current administration, they have another source of concern as well. In January, President Biden tweeted that 2023 would be the year of buying American. And two of his signature legislative achievements, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, include policies promoting the production of American goods or subsidizing the consumption of goods made in America. The CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act represent certain types of what economists call industrial policies, where the government promotes certain industries. What does economic theory and economic experience teach us about the costs and benefits of industrial policies, Chad? The first thing that economic theory teaches us about industrial policy is it's complicated. Uh, it's nuanced. And so if we start off at sort of Econ 101 teaching and we have competitive markets, perfect competition, lots of companies running around, um, no one has market power, there's no market failure, so there's nothing wrong, um, then there really is no role for governments to intervene, to subsidize. They can't really do any better for the economy than the market would able to do. All they can kind of do is screw things up. So that's what basic economics teaches us. Um, but I think the issue today is a lot of the action that we're seeing on industrial policy uh, in the real world is doesn't really fit that basic Econ 101 model. And once you allow for the world to be more complicated, you can get different outcomes. So what are some of the complications that would give you different outcomes that would diverge from the very simplest ideas about this? One complication is if um, markets are pretty concentrated. So there's only a couple of you know, dominant players in the market, only a couple of firms. And economists think about this as, you know, oligopolies. Um, and you could imagine this to be the case in, you know, semiconductors, um, maybe, perhaps electric vehicles, maybe. Uh, but the point is they're not perfectly competitive. There's relatively few players. Then what can happen is subsidies can give companies in countries even, kind of competitive advantage. If you get there first, right? If you get a first mover advantage, you can get more of you know, the overall uh, market than would, than would otherwise be the case. And so the argument is if some countries are subsidizing already, maybe doing industrial policy is kind of a rational response. And in these kinds of industries, that's what we're seeing. So it's not as if the United States is the first one to subsidize semiconductors. It's kind of the last one to subsidize semiconductors. We have a lot of countries in Asia that have been subsidizing semiconductors for years. Similar with electric vehicles. China has been subsidizing electric vehicles. Another example, and I think this is really important for um, sort of the electric vehicles and the Inflation Reduction Act, is subsidies can actually be extraordinarily beneficial if there are what economists call positive externalities associated with them, right? So um, if there's something that the market doesn't capture, and here the argument is something like, well, there are some benefits um, or distortions that could get corrected by subsidizing these cleaner technologies, inducing consumers, for example, to switch over 
toward electric vehicles and away from internal combustion engine types of vehicles um, that they wouldn't otherwise have an incentive to switch over to because that's better for the climate, right? And so when you have a big environmental concern out there like climate, uh, some of these industrial policy incentives can can be useful uh, for the economy as well. So as to your first point, Chad, if all countries are trying to be the first mover, doesn't that just create a lot of waste? Uh, it can. Um, and that, you know, it, you can end up in, it, with an outcome where there's <laughs> too much subsidization. I think that's absolutely uh, the case. Whether or not that's going to happen this time around, we'll see. And I think, you know, another argument for some of these subsidies that, that I didn't mention, but that I should add is the world that existed, say, before COVID, before the pandemic, um, before all of the recent trade conflicts, especially, was pretty economically efficient. We had very efficient supply chains. We had a location of semiconductor production, especially, um, you know, throughout the world that was was very, very um, profitable for the companies, good for the economy. But it wasn't particularly resilient in the in the idea being that a lot of the concentration of production was located geographically in very, very few locations. So places like Taiwan and South Korea, these are the only places in the world that produce, for example, the fanciest high-end semiconductors. That may have been okay in a world of you know, 10, 20 years ago, but the world that we live in today is, is quite different. It has to contest with climate-related shocks, really severe storms, droughts, floods, things like that. Um, we now actually have health-related shocks with pandemics that can you know, shut down a, an entire location if, there, if there's a disease outbreak, let alone you add in increased ge- you know, tensions associated with geopolitics, the threat that one country might invade another, something like that. The idea of having really, really concentrated geographically production of certain really important types of economic activities like high-end semiconductors for the global economy is just a bad idea. So kind of the argument is we need more diversification. And I think some of the subsidies that are happening out here, it's not only the United States, Japan is doing some too, Europe is doing some too, have that objective in mind. So you're speaking to the issue of national security, maybe writ large, because you could talk about things like personal protection equipment in the event of another pandemic or the production of semiconductors, which are very important for a wide range of things, including military applications. Should the government foster domestic production of these vital goods that have national security implications? This is another one of these questions that it's complicated, and I think you have to look at on a case-by-case basis. Part of what we now have to do, though, since policymakers are asking (laughs) or motivating this, is to say, well, okay, what is the national security risk, threat? What's the probability that something bad could happen when it comes to national security? And then what are the associated costs of that that would then motivate this, this kind of policy? And we usually didn't have to think all that hard about that. Um, but 
recently, for example, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, Europe realized the hard way that it had been excessively dependent on Russia as its source of energy, natural gas through pipelines and in the same with oil. Um, and Russia threatened to cut it off, has ultimately cut it off. The European Union has decided to cut itself off and look for alternative sources. But that has been extremely costly for the European economy. And so now you have countries like the United States saying, we don't want to have those same sorts of dependencies uh, build up in certain areas where we might face national security threats. So you're raising the issue of national security in the context of the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion, but a subtext to a lot of the discussion is the rise of China. There are concerns that Chinese high-tech products may be used to spy on U U.S. citizens and that the export of semiconductors to China are vital for its own military. Do you see the rise of China as an important source of trade tensions, and how valid do you see these concerns? I, I see nearly every trade tension that exists out there, uh, especially for the United States, maybe less so for other countries. But certainly for the United States, almost every trade tension can be traced back to China in one way or another. That doesn't necessarily mean they're all legitimate, um, but they, I think, can all be traced back to China. For the electric vehicle example, um, you know, this is arguably the transportation of the future. You know, um, and the concern there is that the current supply chain for a lot of the critical inputs that go into making successful electric vehicles, so the batteries, their raw materials, their components, well, currently, a huge percent of those supply chains go through China. And I think the United States' concern is that could lead to the same sort of dependence that Europe had with respect to Russia. And you don't want to be as exposed. Uh, and I think that's arguably one of the motivations for some of its industrial policy, is to try to reduce that dependence, is the, the, the concern over national security issues with a country like China. So in the wake of World War II, the United States was largely responsible for creating a rules-based international trading system are these policies by the United States, but also by other countries, reversing that? Yes. Um, I, I think it's clearly the case nowadays that the United States and other countries um, are imposing policies that are broadly inconsistent with the rules of the game that we've had since you know, the end of World War II, as you mentioned. Um, and that's just sort of the new reality. Some would argue that, well, even when China came into the WTO in 2001, in the 20 years since then, it never really played by the same WTO rules as everyone else. It has a very different economic system that doesn't really fit within the WTO rules. And I think what we're seeing today is the concerns with how you know, the global economy has evolved over the last 20 years. Um, through, you know, again, very good, for the most part, trade policies, low tariffs, but it's led to economic efficiency 
And in certain cases, the geographic concentration of certain types of economic activity, whether it's semiconductors, whether it's you know batteries for, for electric vehicles, that are very, very concentrated geographically. And the only way to change that is through policies that are probably breaking WTO rules because they ultimately are discriminatory. And that's a key, key rule of the WTO, non-discrimination. So I think most of our listeners will know that the WTO is the acronym for the World Trade Organization. And the WTO is a key institution for the rules-based trading system. But it's been hobbled lately, not least by the United States. Some of this occurred under the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has been slow to remedy the problem, right? That's exactly right. Um, the, the Trump administration imposed a lot of policies that in and of themselves were inconsistent with the World Trade Organization's rules. Um, they hindered the dispute settlement process under the WTO. So if you know a country has a trade dispute with another one, there's a process there to resolve the disputes. Well, the Trump administration refused to appoint uh, judges to what are called what's called its appellate body, the WTO's appellate body, which means that it's really hard to now adjudicate grievances between countries. So that's weaker than it used to be. But it's not, and and the Biden administration hasn't fixed any of those problems. And it's arguably through some of these industrial policies introduced some of its own policies that are now you know probably not aligned with WTO rules. But it's not just the United States. Uh, you know when the when the Trump administration imposed its policies. Trading partners, if you don't like them, you're supposed to just file WTO disputes. That generally wasn't the reaction. Uh, they retaliated. You know, when the Trump administration put tariffs on China, China retaliated with tariffs rather than waiting for a WTO ruling. When the Trump administration put tariffs on steel and aluminum, um, trading partners retaliated China, but also Canada and, and the European Union. So the WTO has found itself in a difficult position for a number of years. And it's not, there aren't really any signs that, that things are likely to be, get better for it anytime soon. So Chad, we've been talking at a pretty high level. We've been talking about the WTO, about nations as a whole and so on. Can you talk a little bit about how these seemingly high level events, industrial policy, the WTO, the violation of trading rules, how do these affect people at an individual level? Well, I like to use the, the electric vehicle example. Um, you know, in the United States, through this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act, this was the piece of industrial policy legislation uh, that passed Congress and was signed into law last summer, in August of 2022. There are consumer tax credits in there for electric vehicles. So, you know, now I can, I can go to a car dealership um, and it's cheaper for me as an individual to buy an electric vehicle today than it was before August 16th when this law went into effect. And the purpose of that is to try to incentivize me to buy an electric vehicle, which is going to be better for the environment than one with a you know gas-guzzling engine. So that's the first part. The second part is, and this is the more that's the good part of the Inflation Reduction Act. The second and more troubling part is um, that electric vehicle only qualifies for that tax credit if it's assembled somewhere in North America. So if it's assembled in the United States, Canada, or Mexico. 
Um, so that's potentially good for you know American workers if there's enough of these electric vehicles being manufactured here in the United States. But if I wanted an electric vehicle that had been put together in South Korea, because I really like the Hyundai, you know, Ionic, or a Volkswagen, you know, the ID4, and it hadn't the, the plant in Tennessee hadn't been up and running yet, uh, and it was only available from from the plant in Germany or, or somewhere in Europe, I wouldn't be able to access that tax credit under under the current rules. So these things do affect individuals. How you know the rules of the game, the rules of these policies are ultimately written do ultimately trickle down. Their details really matter in terms of how they affect you and me. So it's really um, dangerous to predict what's going to happen. Um, and people often don't want to do that, but I'll put you on the spot anyway. What do you see happening to the international trading regime? Is there going to be this continued move towards nationalistic policies and industrial policies? And what would you recommend countries do as we move forward? I really think what happens depends less on trade and economic policymakers than on national security policymakers. Um, we really can only do what they allow us to do. So, you know, if the United States and China decide they can't get along as countries, you know, that they're for some reason going to be military adversaries, then the trading relationship is going to be very, very difficult. And it's going to be hard to have any kind of negotiations to come up with, you know, new trade rules that would accommodate our, our getting along with each other. Uh, if they could get along, right, if if President Biden and, and President Xi, you know, said, uh, figured out some way that, you know, we're going to put this national security stuff to the side uh, and, and, you know, everything will be fine and we'll, we'll trust each other more then it would be great if trade you know, negotiators on the US side and on the Chinese side and with other trading partners as well in Europe, Japan, the other major economies of the world could get together and decide on where the trade conflicts really are in, the, in terms of the trading rules. What is it really in the Chinese system that's very different as an economic system than, than ours or the system in Europe. Where is it that we really do have difficulties that we need to create some, some new rules? That's what I would like to see happen. I, I'm not predicting that it's going to happen because ultimately I think it's out of the hands of the trade nerds like me out there in the world and, and much more uh, in the sphere of those uh, handling national security. Well, you and I both wish that the world was more like what trade nerds wished it would be like. But until that happens, it's still very valuable to get insights from trade nerds, or maybe put it differently, trade experts like you, Chad. So thank you very much for joining me once again on Account of Fact Chats. This has been Account of Fact Chats. To learn more about Account of Fact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.